Hi, welcome to Waterstone Sermon Podcast. We're so glad that you've tuned in to join us today to study God's Word. Here at Waterstone, we exist to help people become like Jesus and live for others. What this means practically is that we gather together as one body to seek God's heart for justice, to serve together, and to connect with one another as the body of Christ. We hope that you'll join us for one of our weekend services soon. We gather on Saturday nights at 5 p.m. and on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We look forward to meeting you in person, and we hope that you enjoy today's sermon. A reading from Luke 14, 25 through 27. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, Such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Nathaniel. After reading the scripture together, all of us that are here in the room are now questioning why we made such effort to get here (laughs) this morning. It's really good to see you. For sure, most of our congregation is watching online. We're glad you're joining us. And like Sarah said, I hope your pancakes are good this morning. But uh, there's probably, I don't know, 200 people here in the room. And uh, first of all, yeah, (laughs) thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm so excited uh, about the next preaching series, the controversial, the hard sayings of Jesus. But before we dive in, um, I want to say this, that the high point of our time together both uh, online and in here will be uh, our gathering at the Lord's table after the message. And so we want to give online people, this harkens back to when we were in COVID, right? I remember one family used to tell me whenever we did communion, we had a few Cheerios and we had milk in shot glasses and that was our (laughs) communion time. So whatever you want to use this morning at home, feel free, but we look forward to gathering around the table with this text in mind as we are with Jesus uh, in a bit. So that's where we're headed this morning. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing. How many sore backs in the room? (laughs) Yeah. And Waterstone and most, you know, all churches have the heart of Christ like this. And so I know that many of you did not just shovel one driveway. You shoveled several and uh, uh, neighbored hard this morning. So um, just hopefully your back will let you, uh, give you 30 minutes of relief. Uh, as we uh, engage this text this morning. Thank you for neighboring so hard, Waterstone. You know, we're reminded that the purpose of the church is because God loves the world and he wants the world to know it. That's why we neighbor hard, really, really hard, because God loves the world. So sore backs and all, here we go. You know, most people uh, believe that Jesus, whatever else he was, was a great teacher. Most people would still vote for Thomas Jefferson's words that the code of ethics that Jesus brought was perfect and sublime. Yet, when you actually sit down in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and begin reading, you know, the red letters, the actual things Jesus said, you come across again and again what are called the hard sayings of Jesus. 
Now, that title comes from a specific reference. In John chapter 6, after Jesus said something hard, uh, like, you will eat my flesh and you will drink my blood, the crowd said on hearing it, many of His disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? When we talk about the hard sayings of Jesus, we're really meaning two things. One, we're talking about them being hard to understand. And indeed, every time we gather and we pick this uh, kind of series deliberately for Lent, as we walk through a time of, you know, examining our devotion to Jesus, we want to have these sayings that uh, Jesus reveals in a deeper way who He is and what He wants from us. And some of the things he says, like we're going to hear this morning, uh, when they first hit you, it's like, what? What do you mean by that, Jesus? Hate your parents? What? They're hard to understand. But then, and even more, they're hard to live. They're hard to swallow. They're hard to absorb into your life because of he's revealing like who he is and what intense discipleship means because of who he is. How do we ever live this out? One writer said that the hard sayings of Jesus are like a piece of hard candy. You don't just put a piece of hard candy in your mouth and bite down without an extra trip to the dentist. No. You have to linger on it and squish, squash to the other side of your mouth and reflect and think, and you've got to just suck that thing down in order to absorb it into your system. That's the same way these next weeks we'll encounter the hard sayings of Jesus. For instance, our text this morning, Jesus says, in order to follow me, you must hate your father and mother, your wife and children, and your brothers and sisters. Now, for any of us, we could underline one of them and say, that's not so bad. <laughs> but like all of them? And really, what is going on? Some of us in the room are saying, that's absurd. Others of us in the room, especially when it comes to father and mother, are saying, it's unnecessary. I already do. <laughs> Seriously, if that is you, that's a, that's a deep pain to carry. A deep pain. And I think that even as we unpack what Jesus is trying to say by saying we must hate our father and mother, if we do it Jesus' way, I actually think hating our father and mother the way Jesus says is actually going to help us honor our father and mother. So hold on to that, and we will get there and see the brilliance again of Jesus' teaching. What I want to do, <coughs> excuse me, I am struggling with a cold, so I apologize in advance for the coughs. And yeah, and I've just probably like told everyone not to come pray with me after the service, so sorry about that. But um, I want to get into the text and first movement talk about what this would have meant and how it would have been heard by Jesus' original audience. I want us to try and get back to the shock that it would have been for Jesus to say this. I think, you know, after 2,000 years of conditioning, this text doesn't shock us like it should. So we're going to spend some time in the first century and trying to understand what Jesus meant 
as he spoke it to his original audience. And then second and last, as we come to the table, I want us to ask, okay, we understand the meaning. How do we apply it now? 2,000 years later in our very Western culture, what does it mean for us today? So that's where we're going. We'll jump in, we'll walk through it and hear it with first century ears, and then secondly, we'll apply it as 21st century Christians. Let's put the text on the screen, verse 25, Luke chapter 14. Um, We read this, sorry, Helmut, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Let let me go back because Helmut, you're, you're right on this. Let's go back to Luke chapter nine. I want us first to see where this is in Luke's flow of thought, where it occurs in the book of Luke, this gospel of Jesus. If you go back to Luke chapter 9, what happens in Luke is a very significant conversation. In fact, it happens also in Matthew and in Mark where there's this hinge conversation where Jesus, his whole ministry turns and is now really focused on one thing. Here's the conversation. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So we hold there for a second. What, what we're seeing Jesus do is begin to really focus in here on his disciples, and he's preparing them for a significant turn in the conversation. Because the disciples, especially Peter, actually get it right here, because Peter says that you are the Christ, the Messiah. And we're kind of shocked that Jesus doesn't say, right, and go tell everyone. Go tell everyone. You figured it out. But notice what happens next in verse 21. Uh, Peter answered, God's Messiah. Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them. (laughs) This is the surprise. Jesus strictly warns them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, <coughs> and must be killed, and on the, th- on the third day be raised to life. So the surprise is that the disciples figure it out, who Jesus is, Messiah, but don't tell anybody. And then he says, not only that, this is how it's going to end. I am now on a straight path. I'm walking the road to my last week in Jerusalem. And everything now is focused on that. And then, instead of, you know, not being, don't tell anybody, notice what he does tell the disciples to do in verses 23 and 24. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily present tense, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And what's interesting, as we think about this preaching series, you're going to to, to soon understand that most of the 70 hard sayings of Jesus occur after this conversation. Does that make, do you understand what That means that the way Jesus calls and the way Jesus forms his disciples is in the shadow of the cross. It's in the heart of the road 
to laying down his life in love to save the world. Jesus forms his disciples on the road to the cross. So, another turn happens when we get now to Luke chapter 14 and verse 25, because remember in Luke 9, he's talking to his disciples. Now, chapter 14, who is he talking to? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, and we'll go to the said in just a moment, but I want us to see the turn. He was talking to his disciples, and he's saying to them a very hard thing. I'm on the road to the cross, and if you're with me, you're on the road with a cross. But now he turns to the large crowds, the potential pool of disciples, the people who were intrigued enough with all they'd heard about to go and see Jesus and hear him preach. They thought, wow, this is a phenomenon in our culture. We should see what this is about. And what you would think Jesus would do with his methodologies is saying, well, when we get to the crowds, we better make it what? Seeker-driven. We better, oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. <laughs> Thanks. We better make this non-offensive. Let's just water it down. These are the crowds after. We want them to get, you know, into the church. We want them to become Christians. We want them to... He doesn't do that. Why? I think what Jesus doesn't want to do as he begins to call disciples from the crowds is to say, there's not two levels of Christians. There's not those level of Christians, maybe called the fringe, maybe called the creasters, you know, Christmas and Easter. They're, they're the people that, you know, they think Jesus, well, I, I like to call them the Doobie Brother Christians. Jesus is just all right with me. They're the people who think, yeah, with Jefferson, what a great teacher. And he, he might even be the son of God. And, you know, he, when I am in trouble, I'll pray to him. Or, you know, when I really want to lay down something good, I'll, I'll do it for Jesus. But they're not really, like, in the mix. They haven't picked up a cross. They haven't said that Jesus is my sole reason to exist. They're the doobie brother. Jesus is just all right with me. And what Jesus is doing is saying, there's no two levels. There's not the fringe and the core. There's not, you know, the, the, um, the Sunday morning Christians and then the rest of the week Christians that are like all out and all in. There, if you could say it this way, you ever like go on vacation and you book a room online and it has this great price, and so you book it, and then you go to check out, and what happens? There's the resort fee, and there's the local town tax fee, and there's the fee for having Mike and Ike's candy in the room, and there's you know, all these different fees, and it's like $100 more than you booked. There's the fine print. Hear me well. With Jesus, there is no fine print. With Jesus... He does not turn to his disciples or to the crowds. He does not turn to the crowds and say, I'll give you an abundant life, and then turn to his disciples and say, but there'll be a cross. He tells everyone 
you know, what you win them with is what you win them to. And he says to them, if you want to come after me, you pick up a cross. The second thing I think we need to understand as Jesus, you know, he's, he's turning now is um, when he comes to chapter 4 and verse 26, we read now when he begins to teach, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Now, I wanna, I've underlined the father, mother, wife, children. What Jesus is doing here, not only with, with his language, but as we see, he's very targeted on what is the highest cultural value of his time. In the ancient world, your family was your honor, or if it was not doing well, it was your shame. Your family was your purpose. Your family was your security and covering. Your family was everything. It was everything. And so Jesus, being the teacher he is, being the Lord of heaven that he is, takes direct aim at the highest value in his culture and says, you got to hate your father and mother. More on the word hate in a moment. But notice how he does it. Father and mother, that's your childhood. Wife and children, that's your middle age. Brothers and sisters, for good or for bad, are with you through the whole thing. What Jesus is saying, what I'm breaking into is your life's agenda. The whole thing. And what he's saying is that you can't come to me with your life's agenda as your cultural values define it and say to me, well, just fit me in where you can. Do you see what he's doing? He's putting his cultural values off the rail. And he's saying, if you want to walk with me, I need to be your highest, deepest allegiance. He is derailing his culture. And that's why, you know, it's provocative. And he uses this kind of language. And then it goes on to talk about the word hate. He actually uses the word hate. We have to unpack that a little bit, this language, because what he's doing here is being very deliberate and going after his culture's highest value. He could have said this in a much different way, but he wanted to be provocative, and he uses the word hate. Now, we, the, in the Semitic domain of the meaning of this word, it really has two meanings. The first meaning of the word hate here has the idea of like actively aggressive psychological hate where you either write someone off and never speak to them again or you aggressively like violently go after them and hurt them and you, you know, take your vengeance out on them. That's neither one of those are what Jesus is using the word hate to speak of here. He's using the second meaning of the Semitic domain that it has because the word hate can also mean and did mean in his culture the idea of preferential love. So an illustration of this is in Genesis 29 when Jacob, the great forefather of Israel, married two wives named Rachel and Leah. Do you remember that uh, Jacob loved Rachel? I mean, he worked seven years for her, to win her hand in marriage to get her father's approval, and it seemed like a day. He was in love with Rachel. Leah, he got swindled and taken advantage of and had to take her first kind of thing. And the text in Genesis 29 twice says that Jacob hated Leah but loved Rachel. 
So what does hate mean there? It does not mean that he wanted to kill Leah or ignore her for the rest of her life. What it does mean is that he preferred Rachel and hated Leah. Now, he loved Leah in terms of sacrificial giving. He cared for her as the mother of his children. It's a tender moment when he goes to bury Leah. He cared for Leah. But here's the point. The way that Jacob loved Rachel compared to the way that he loved Leah looked like hate for poor Leah because he was so captured by Rachel. In the same way, the way that we are called to love Jesus compared to the way that we love our mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters should look like hate when it comes to them. We are to love Jesus Christ so deeply that when it's compared to any other love in our life, there's a huge, huge difference. Wow. Let's bring it to a point. We have the, the, the theme like this. It, it, it's when, when, if we're to see God, Helmut, it's that slide. Sorry, I'm losing poor Helmut at every turn. If we are to see God, we will give him our highest love and our deepest allegiance. That's what Jesus' original audience heard. Can you imagine how shocked they must have been? If you want to see God, Jesus must be the highest love and the deepest allegiance of your heart. One more thing before we prepare to go to the table and talk about the application. The other thing, I skipped over it earlier, I think it's important to go back to it. Not only is Jesus very deliberate with his word choices about hate, you know, the comparative hate between Jesus and anything else, he's very deliberate about where he centers his teaching. If you go back to verses uh, 26 and 27, and we've underlined, notice what Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is controversial here, not only by the word hate, but by the self-referencing of his teaching. Let me say something that I think we see again and again in the teaching of Jesus. It's very self-centered. Now, I probably stuns. So some of you want to come after me even with my cold and say, wait a minute, are you calling Jesus self-centered? No, hear me well. I am not calling Jesus self-centered. He's the least self-centered person that has ever lived. What I am calling his teaching self-centered, that he was the referential point for all of his teaching. I think, again, in our 2,000 year later kind of, we've heard this so much, this does not shock us like it would have shocked the first century. I mean, can you imagine sitting down to coffee with a friend, you find out his name's Jesus, you don't really know him, but you sit down with him and you start talking and you begin to unburden a little bit about your life, but then after five minutes, this friend named Jesus says, well, enough about you. What about me? Who do you say that I am? 
Oh, and by the way, however you answer that question is going to determine your eternal destiny. Would you want to have coffee again with that person? How would that strike you? Yet Jesus, again and again and again, you know, it's so different from every other religion, now and then, so different. Every other religion is, oh, if you want to connect with God, you've got to do the, the pillars, or you've got to do that path, or you've got to do those practices. Every other religion is about a path, a set of practices or pillars. Christianity is about a person who says, if you want to live, it's with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. It's me, me, me. That's the only way you are going to live, me. You read through the Gospels. One of the hard sayings we're going we're gonna to come in a few weeks is when he's talking to a rich young millennial who's sold his computer business and now has millions and billions of dollars and is set for life and maybe has a son named Elon. But he, Jesus says to him, look, you want to follow me? You want to be saved? You got to sell everything. What's he saying? I am more important than every cent of your wealth. Will you follow me? Another time, Early in the book of John, chapter 3, there's a boomer that comes to him named Nicodemus. And he says, how do we really know God? How do we know him? And they have this dialogue. And at the end, Jesus says, look, if you don't know me, you will perish. Me, me, me. It's Jesus. It's Jesus is the way to salvation. So let's take stock here of where we are. And then we want to talk about two applications. What Jesus is doing is he's telling that first century audience at this conversation on, when you understand now that I'm the Messiah, I'm actually now going to begin to show you how I'm going to save the world. And it's not going to be through military armies, and it's not going to be through political power. It's going to be through me going to Jerusalem where I will die on a cross and be raised again on the third day. But that's where we're going now. And it's not just anymore for the disciples, I've told you, now it's the crowds. And anyone, and Jesus saying, challenging the highest value of his culture, saying whatever they're telling you is a way to live, they're wrong. It's me. Follow me. Okay? I'm with you, Jesus. I heard that. If I was in the first century, man, John 6 probably, I don't know. That's a hard, hard saying. What does it mean for us now, 2,000 years later? Two things. First of all, we hear Jesus teaching this hard saying. It means that discipleship is costly. It's costly. Verse 27, Jesus talks about a cross. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, a cross, a cross. Again, 2,000 years, we hear this every Sunday. It doesn't shock us. Used to, I think one thing that will happen again and again these next eight weeks with the hard sayings is we'll see how controversial Jesus was, how he needs to be again. A cross, what's a cross? A cross is a symbol of execution. 
A cross means that you're under arrest and you're sentenced to die. If you saw someone in the ancient world carrying a cross, what would you think? You would think, that's the last time we're going to see that person. You know what else you wouldn't think? You wouldn't think with that cross carrying it, oh man, this cross is heavy. This is so hard. Uh, I'd like to ask for something different. Uh Uh-uh. When you are carrying a cross, you are under arrest. Your life is no longer your own. That's what a cross means. Jesus says, pick up the cross and follow me. What does that mean? That means something for the inside, for our hearts, and it means something outside for our lives. The heart, it means this. Just as Jesus in his day went after the highest value in his culture, the family, and he began to say, chiseled away, you know, it's not family that's going to save you. You have to love me more than family. What's the highest value of our culture in our day and age? I would submit individual autonomy is the highest value of American culture. What's individual economy? It it means this. No one has the right to tell me what to do with my life. No one has the right to tell me what to do with my body. No one has the right to tell me what to do with my money. No one has the right to do to tell me what, what to do with my sexuality. No one has the right to tell me what to do with my gender. No one. That's us. And you know what Jesus would reply? You're under arrest. I do have the right to tell you what to do with your body and with your money and with your sexuality and with your gender and with your life. I have the right. I am the maker of heaven and earth. I am the Lord of all. I have the right. So the way that you love me compared to the way that you walk in our culture, it has to look like hate. Oh, my goodness. We, we, we ourselves are so often like falling into this frog in the kettle kind of thing. Like, well, I have the right, you know, the right to this, the right to that. People, people say, you know, I, I love Jesus and I want to be a Christian and I'll even go to church. But I want to live life the way I want to live it. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to get this or that. I I, I don't know. Did we put this quote on there, Helmut, about... I was reflecting on this. It starts, sorry, but it starts this way. Um, I think it's possible to construct a Christian faith Here's what I came to after pouring over this again and again. I don't know if we have it. I don't know if I got it on a slide. I think it's possible, see if you agree, to construct a Christian faith that has become so comfortable that it's a long time since we've heard Jesus say anything that we disagree with. I want to read that again and you sit in it with me. This is our culture. 
I think it's possible to construct a Christian faith that has become so comfortable that it's a long time since we've heard Jesus say anything that we disagreed with. Why? Because we tend to build life around the way we see it and the way we want it. And Jesus says, the goal of your life is not for you to live your views. The goal of your life is to live my views. Jesus' views. That's the goal. And you pick up the cross and you are either all in or you're not. And you walk away. So Jesus goes right for our culture's heart and he challenges our individual autonomy and says, you're either carrying a cross and you're with me and the goal of your life is my views on all those issues or you're not. So where's your heart? And then secondly, I think the idea of carrying a cross in life and the outside means that life is going to be challenging at times because Jesus is such a weight in our life. It's going to be deeply challenging. I think sometimes, and probably some here this morning, who often think, wow, when Jesus comes in, if he just comes in, my life's going to go a lot smoother. (laughs) No. If anything, your life is going to be weighted and in more tension more of the time than it ever was before. Why? Because Jesus is often calling us like this. Are you carrying a cross? Do you love me more than any other relationship in life? Do you love me more than the values of our culture? Do you love me? That is a weight. That is a tension that will bring pain and struggle to your life. It's called a cross. You're under arrest. You're his. Your life is not your own. So even when we go out and live the cross and neighbor our neighbors, it's hard. And if you love the world like God loves the world, and that's the goal, right? It will break your heart. It'll break your heart. Neighboring, we're talking a lot this year about neighboring. We're saying it's again and again that God loves the world and he wants the world to to know it. And so that's why we go and we neighbor and we talk about Jesus and we demonstrate Jesus again and again. Well, I've been asking you to send me your neighboring stories. I hope some of you will keep sending one. I got one a couple weeks ago I wanted to share because it fits so well with this idea. If you choose to love the world, you will end up with a broken heart. This is from one of our saints here named Ruth Durgan. At the very beginning of COVID, four years ago, at our last service that we were in person, Waterstone (laughs) threw out the idea to bring some toilet paper to your neighbors. Remember those days? Remember those lines at Costco? Thinking it a good and lighthearted way to connect at this hard time, I did. All four neighbor groups laughed and took them with the warm intention I offered. Widow Ava exclaimed, that's exactly what I needed. (laughs) So started two years of regular bringing surprise treats to their four doors. It was an unobtrusive way to check on how they were all faring and thus developing another layer of connection. Knowing all of my neighbors in their advanced ages, Upon my asking, they were willing to give me the contact numbers of their faraway children. 
Wayne and Nora across the street have always been very private, but as their elder infirmities and sicknesses increased, they accepted help a tiny bit more. This past year, cancer and other aging weaknesses hit them both, and they, of course, insisted on staying at home. Very sadly, loving the world will break your heart. Wayne and Ava, 95 years old, both passed away in December, within 10 days of one another. I was so glad to see them in their hospitals before they died. A celebration was held in their home last weekend. I am sad and will miss this sweet couple gone so quickly who graced my life with their friendly and gracious ways. Carrying the cross to love this world will break our hearts. So what does it come to? It comes to this. This kind of love that Jesus is offering to us, this mission of cross-carrying, is the love that we've been looking for all of our lives. All of our, look what that love endured on the road. This means it will always be there for you. This means his love ultimately will not fail you and it will carry you. This means that his love can never be worn out by our different and wrong and frustrating choices. It never gets worn out. Jesus loves us. I'm telling you, marriage can't give you this kind of love. Your successful professional life cannot give you this kind of love. International acclaim cannot give you this kind of love. And some of us, a lot of us in this room have never had any of those happen and we don't believe it. But when you get to the pinnacle of everything that is not the love of Christ, you will see how far short all other loves fall. And it's then, and it's then, that we need to hear Jesus' words. He wants it to be emotional. He wants it to be intense. Love me. Love me. Are you crying this morning? Do it with him. Are you longing this morning? Do it with him. Are you hurting with him? Are you joyful with him? He is the love you've been looking for all of your life. As we come to the table, I'm going to pray a prayer, and then I'll give the words of institution. And in between, you'll have moments of quiet, moments of music. But ask yourself, after hearing a hard saying of Jesus, Jesus, are you the fairest of all? Would the love I have for you look so different than the love I have for anyone else and everything else? It's that love that we want. Let's pray. This is a prayer of George Whitfield, 1741. Oh, my dear friends, these are matters of eternal moment. I did not come to tickle your ears. If I had a mind to do so, I would play the orator, no. But I came, if God should be pleased, to touch your hearts 
What shall I say to you? Open the door of your heart that the King of glory, the blessed Jesus, may come in and erect His kingdom in your soul. Make room for Christ. The Lord Jesus desires to eat with you tonight. Christ is willing to come into any of your hearts that will be pleased to open and receive Him.